the real-time net worth index, which is managed by Forbes.com, lists as the most wealthiest person in the world, Bill Gates. Shouldn't come as a surprise. With $82.3 billion and the bank, this man is the wealthiest person on earth. And this is real time. This is as of November of this year. He is the wealthiest person on the earth. As a matter of fact, it's interesting when you kind of explore, dig into the background of Bill Gates, that since 2000, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has given away $30 billion. Now, you know when the amount of money you give away, $30 billion, is enough to put you in the top 20 wealthiest people on the planet, you got a lot of money. And that's what Bill and Melinda Gates have. Now, the question this morning is what caused Bill Gates to become a billionaire? I mean, he is a self-made billionaire. Now, obviously, we can reason that he's a smart cookie. Some people speculate he has an IQ of about 160. It's pretty high. There's no doubt that Bill Gates, in addition to being smart, is also incredibly ambitious. Most of us know of Bill Gates, but do you know how he got his start? In January of 1975, after reading the current issue of Popular Mechanics, an issue that featured the Altair 8800, Bill Gates did something daring. He contacted the company that released this machine, a company with the initials MITS. They had created this new microcomputer, and Gates called to inform them that he and his friend Paul Allen were working on a basic interpreter for their new, flat, their new platform. Now, here's the truth. It was a lie. The reality is Bill Gates and Paul Allen had not worked on a basic interpreter for the Altair 8800. As a matter of fact, they didn't even own an Altair 8800. Bill Gates was just trying to get a meeting and not knowing that this was a ploy, MITS president Ed Roberts agreed to meet with them to see a demo. He was curious. So with a meeting established, Gates and Allen scurried off and bought an Altair 8800, spent the next couple weeks writing this basic interpreter they claimed to have, and then they presented their demo. Now, the company was so blown away by what they saw that as the story goes, Paul Allen was hired immediately. Gates would have been, but he was a current student at Harvard. Gates took a leave of absence to help Allen on this whole new project. These two programmers, they defined their partnership with a phrase, micro dash soft. That's what they called themselves. Micro-soft. Now, a year later, they would drop the dash, and they would trade name there in New Mexico the name Microsoft. Gates, he's smart. Gates, no doubt ambitious. But can those two things alone explain why he's a billionaire? I don't think so. Because there are many people that are equally smart, that are equally ambitious, intelligent, aspiring people who aren't billionaires. As a matter of fact, there are really smart, ambitious people that are actual failures. So what is it that makes Bill Gates different? It's not his smarts, it's not his ambition. In his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell, 
he points to Bill Gates' success as may potentially being the result of two things totally out of his control aligning perfectly. First explanation for why Bill Gates is a self-made billionaire could very well be that he was born in 1955. It's true. One of the contributing factors to Bill Gates being worth 82 point some odd billion dollars is that he was born in 1955. Now, before you scratch your head, let me explain. Because the Altair came out in 1975, when Bill Gates was a 20-year-old college student, he was just old enough to be able to take advantage of this new opportunity, but he wasn't too old that he couldn't afford to take a risk. Like it would seem that even with all of his talent and all of his ambition, if Bill Gates had been born in 1945 or 1965, he would have missed this unique window of opportunity. He wouldn't have been in the right season of life to seize the moment. You know, it's really interesting how many of the early tech pioneers were born during the early 50s from 1950 to 1955. Microsoft co-founder, Paul Allen, born 1953. Apple co-founders, Steve Jobs was born in 1955, and Steve Wozniak was born in 1950. Sun Microsystems founders, Bill Joy and Scott McNeely were, were born in 1945. Most of all of the people that created this entire personal computer home PC thing were born in a very specific window. You could be a brilliant programmer, a brilliant guy. If you were born five years earlier or five years later, you wouldn't be a billionaire today. You would have missed the window. The market would have already been dominated. You'd have been left out in the cold. The second component that might contribute to why Bill Gates is a self-made billionaire, in addition to the fact that he's smart and ambitious and born in the right time, is the fact that when this machine was released to the public, Bill Gates was one of only a handful of people in the world to have actually logged some 10,000 hours of programming. When the Altair 8800 hit the market, Gates, unique to most people his age, had had programmed up to about 10,000 hours. And that's significant according to Malcolm Gladwell because he estimates that 10,000 hours is what's required for you to gain success in any field. Like for you to be an expert at something, you need to practice that task for a total of around 10,000 hours. You see, unlike most young men in the 60s, Bill Gates had the good fortune to be able to attend a private school in Seattle that possessed a state-of-the-art computer that they allowed their students to experiment with. This meant by the time the, the Altair computer kit became available to the general public, Bill Gates was already a professional programmer. He had enough experience under his belt that he was perfectly prepared to take advantage, maximum advantage, of the PC revolution. Here's my point. Bill Gates was not only successful, is not only successful, because he's smart and ambitious, but it would appear that his incredible success can also be attributed to the reality he was prepared to take advantage of an opportunity the exact moment the opportunity it presented itself. Like the stars perfectly aligned. It's quite an amazing phenomenon. 
Now, last Sunday, we noted that the success of any kind of social epidemic is heavily dependent upon the involvement of people who possess a specific rare set of skills, abilities, gifts. There is no doubt that the reason many of us have a home computer is because of Bill Gates and his innovation. In a sense, he was part of a tipping point of sorts. Now, I'll explain how dominating Microsoft is to our general culture uh, by just providing a side bit of information. I, I found this fascinating. Do you know the most viewed photograph of all time? I mean, the one photograph, digital photograph, that has been taken, that has been seen by more people than any other photograph in the history of the planet. It's actually a photograph that was taken off the side of a road in Sonoma, Cali Sonoma County, California, by a professional photographer by the name of Charles O'Rear. The photo's called Bliss, and it's been seen, they estimate, it's been seen by over one billion people. A photograph. One billion people since 2002. Now, I should, I should mention that this photo was chosen by Microsoft to be the default window wallpaper of Windows XP. That's an actual photograph. And that's, that's, that's what it looks like in 2010. It's pretty fascinating. I always thought it was Photoshopped. The guy was driving down the road, pulled off the side of the road, and took a picture. That one picture's been seen by more people than any other photo ever. It's, it's unbelievable. No one knows how much Microsoft paid him for it. It's a totally... Uh, it's a total secret. I would love to know. One photograph. It's, it's pretty radical. My point, my point is that it is true. It's true that little causes can have big effects. As we discussed last Sunday, the law of the few. Bill Gates, Microsoft, a unique window of opportunity, and we all have a computer as a result of it. Now, with this in mind, while Christianity as we get into Acts 13, while Christianity was primed to tip from being just a regional movement, which is all it was over the first 20 years or so, to a global phenomenon during the next 20 years where it dominates the Roman Empire, understand that Christianity needed, just like the PC revolution, it needed a specific man with a specific set of skills to accomplish a specific task of taking the gospel into a lost world. And this man, the man for the job, well, that would be Saul of Tarsus. Now, no one can debate that Saul, who we'll know as Paul, was uniquely equipped for this specific task, to kind of be the instigator of a tipping point, so to speak. He was uniquely equipped. Like, first, think about it. He was a notable religious man. Like he had a pedigree within Judaism that as he traveled around the world visiting Jewish communities, this uh, business card, so to speak, would open doors naturally, automatically within Jewish communities. Like he had such a pedigree that he could get into areas where maybe the normal person wouldn't be able to. The second thing that makes Saul unique is the fact that in addition to having this Jewish pedigree, this religious pedigree, is that he also grew up and was educated in a predominantly Gentile city, that being Tarsus, which ensured that Saul, he not only knew the scriptures, he was not only an expert in Judaism, the word of God, 
but he knew Gentile culture. He understood Hellenistic culture. He understood Hellenistic thought. Yes, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. But on the flip side to it, he was very familiar with Gentiles, the way they thought, the way the culture operated, the way that metropolitan cities functioned. Not only did he spend his formative years in Tarsus, but up to this point for the last 10 years, he's been in that city just making a living, coexisting. So he's got a religious pedigree. He understands the culture around him. Intellectually, Saul was unrivaled. He was not only an expert concerning the law, but as we'll see, Saul was well-versed when it came to Greek thought, even Greek mythology, the inner workings of pagan religion. And beyond all of this, what makes Saul so perfect for the task is at this point, he's a seasoned believer. I mean, he's been walking with Jesus for like 14 years at this point. He's not an, an infant Christian. He's not a baby believer. I mean, he's seasoned, he's solid. You might say that Saul's logged 10,000 hours, which makes him perfect for this role. You see, like Bill Gates, don't overlook an interesting reality. That what would make Saul so effective was that he too was a man uniquely prepared to take advantage of an opportunity the exact moment the opportunity presented itself. You might say that by the time we get to verse four, Saul had waited 14 years for the moment to arise. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God and the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now, this launches the beginning of what we would call the first missionary journey. Now, it's not the first missionary journey in the sense that there hadn't been other missionary journeys in the past. To be a missionary simply means to be one that's sent out. So there's been missionary journeys before. I would say what Philip did going to Samaria was in and of itself a missionary journey. Peter making a circuit through Judea and Samaria is a, is a mini missionary journey. We call this though historically the first missionary journey because it's the first one of the apostle Paul who would kind of become the most famous of all missionaries. Now in this group, we have, just in way of recap, three people, three people in the traveling party. We've got Saul, and we've got Barnabas, and we have this young man named John Mark, and we're told that he acted in so many ways as an assistant. Now, as we get into these missionary journeys, which will take us through the end of our travels through Acts, it can often get confusing and complicated because we're moving from town to town to town, and we can kind of get lost in the motion. And so what we'll try to do as we're working our way through these missionary journeys is we're going to demonstrate where they're going geographically to try to help us wrap our minds around the motion of the text. So we're told here that these three men, and they'll put up the map here, they leave Antioch. They leave Antioch and they travel on foot 20 miles southwest to Seleucia. Got that in your mind? You can see it just 20 miles, no big deal. They're heading down to a port city. And from there, they get on a boat and they sail to the island of Cyprus, 
porting in the city of Salamis. Now, Salamis, on the island of Cyprus, was the largest city on the island. And we're told that what did they do when they arrived? They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, this is kind of interesting. First, why did they choose to begin in Cyprus? I mean, we're not told that the Holy Spirit was specific, go to Cyprus, right? We're just told that they're called out, they're sent out. They can go anywhere, right? They can go anywhere they wanna go, no big deal. So why begin in Cyprus when you can choose anywhere to go? Why this particular island? Is it just an accident? I don't think so. I think there's two reasons. First, the island itself was known for its immorality. You know, it's been said, the light always shines the brightest in the darkest areas. So they're gonna take the gospel into uncharted territories, uncharted regions. They wanna take the good news of Jesus into areas that's lost. So they just picked the wickedest place they thought of, which is Cyprus. You know, we're told that while there were pockets of Jewish communities on the island, the mass majority of Cyprus was comprised of Gentiles. About 90% of the population were Gentiles who worshiped the Roman goddess Venus, who was the goddess of love and beauty, sex, fertility. Because sex, when it came to the worship of Venus, was such a pivotal component. Historians believe that temple prostitution, all forms of sexually perverse behavior, was the norm. It was incorporated in the worship of Venus. As a matter of fact, at some point in your life, if you worship the goddess uh, Venus, your wife, your daughter, would have to serve a season as a temple prostitute. That was the worship of Venus. Sexual behavior was incorporated in the worship of Venus. Archaeologists believe that venereal diseases were rampant across the island. So why do they choose Cyprus? It's dark and it's lost. It needs the gospel. It's a good reason to go. The other reason is, well, that it was Barnabas' home, which is kind of ironic to me. Like it would appear that as Barnabas and Saul are determining where they should go, they're throwing out all kinds of ideas. The most logical place to start was at Barnabas' house. Like it's kind of as, as though, you know, Saul is saying, all right, we're gonna take the gospel into the world. Barnabas, where should we start? And Barnabas just replies, I don't know. Let's start at my house, which I like. Hey, if you can't be a missionary to your own home, you have no business being a missionary anywhere else. Like if you can't take the gospel into the four walls of your abode, if you can't shine the light in your own house with your kids, your spouse, to your neighbors, start there which is what I like. They're gonna take the gospel into the world. Where do they begin? Barnabas' home. It's pretty cool. Now note the method of their evangelism. So they go, they travel, they get to the island, and we're told that what did they do? That they begin their outreach in the local synagogue. Now a synagogue, 
it's an interesting thing because the synagogue, you'll never find it mentioned in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist. It was never mandated in the law of Moses. It was never commissioned in the scriptures. It's believed that the synagogue, the idea of the synagogue kind of developed during the Babylonian exile. So the Jews are away from their homeland. The temple's been destroyed. They've been spread out into varying communities. They're foreigners in a foreign land. And so as as tradition develops, that it was kind of required that if 10 or more Jewish males resided in a city, that there should be a synagogue or literally a meeting place. And it was this place that these Jewish men could gather on the Sabbath to worship God, to read of the Torah, and this place would then double as a, as a learning center, a community center during the week, a place where their heritage and their Jewish culture could be maintained, though they were in foreign lands. Now, starting at a synagogue, it made strategic sense for Paul and Barnabas for four reasons. First, Jews were required to show hospitality to other Jews who happened to be traveling through town. So if Paul and Barnabas, they arrive at a particular city. They go to the synagogue because, well, they'd also find lodging, find food, find hospitality, kind of a hostel in some regards, just a good place to, to, to kick up their feet. They'd find some connections. It was just a, it was a good place to start. Secondly, you can imagine that preaching the word of God in the synagogue made sense because Jews, like their worldview was really conducive to the message of Jesus. They already believed that God was creator. They already believed that there was a coming Messiah. Like the framework was all in place. All that needed to get plugged in was, hey, the Messiah did come. His name is Jesus. Good news did arrive. His name is Jesus. Let us tell you about him. So the worldview of the synagogue was already set up in such a way that it was easy to evangelize without establishing a whole lot of backstory. Thirdly, more often than not, If there were Gentiles in that town who had become disenfranchised with pagan gods and pagan idols and and the status quo of the world, and they were searching, longing for something more, and they wanted uh, the revelation from the true God, and they found some appeal, some inkling, some draw to the God of Israel, they would already find themselves affiliated as Gentiles with the synagogue. So not only were the Jews who had this framework, this worldview already in one location, great place to start, but if you were a Gentile seeking, the Bible actually calls them God-fears, then you would also go to the synagogue in your own spiritual quest, your own spiritual journey. We've already actually seen this, right? Cornelius, there in Caesarea, a Roman centurion, was a God-fearer. He wasn't saved, he wasn't a believer. He wasn't even a proselyte, so to speak, but he was connected to the synagogue, which made it another great place for them to begin. And then finally, there was what was known as the custom of the courtesy of the synagogue. Now, because of Saul's former position within Judaism as a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the very fact that, that these men were traveling from Jerusalem would mean that typically in a synagogue, as the service is unfolding, So they would read some of the scriptures, they would pray. If there was a man of notoriety that had come into town, they would invite, the courtesy of the custom of the synagogue was to invite such a man to share some words. And so because Paul, in all of his history, kind of 
you might say wearing his clerical collar, so to speak, comes in, hey, there's a man of note, a man of, they're from Jerusalem. And so during the, the service, Paul, as just a courtesy, would be given a natural opportunity to do what? To open up God's word and to have an audience already established, already together, already primed and ready. And what do they do? You know, I love this. We're told that they preach the word of God. They go into a, an incredibly immoral city. This the paganism had just taken root. Hedonism was the norm. This place was dark. They were lost. And what is the, the mechanism, the mode, the way that Paul and Barnabas decide they could reach these people? Was it with a program? Was it with an outreach? No. They just preached the word of God. They taught the people the word of God. And don't miss this detail. How did they reach the lost? They communicated truth through the teaching of the word. You know, Pastor Chuck, he always said that if you want to rid a room of darkness, what's the best way to go about it? Is the best way to go about it to try to beat the darkness out of the room? I mean, you know, to grab a baseball bat and start swinging around with legalism, swinging around with rules, swinging around with regulations. You know, to go put on good guilt trips and, 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 and yokes of burden on people. Like if you go into a dark room, you're like, man, it's dark. And you grab a baseball bat, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with this problem. And you start swinging that bat around, not only is the room gonna remain dark, you're gonna make a mess and hurt a lot of people in the process. And we see it happen from time to time. Instead, if you turn into a room that's dark and you wanna deal with the darkness, what's the easiest solution? Boop, just turn on a light switch. You go into the darkness where people have been fed a lie. People are empty and, and, and grasping and they want something. They don't know what it, give them the truth. Just turn on a light. It's, it's not that complicated. Well, we're told that they go through the island to Paphos. And, and, and no, just pause for a second, that, that we're not actually given any details of what happens. They're in their first stop. They just go, they go to the synagogue, they preach the word, they move on. We don't know if there was converts, we don't know if a church was planted. And, and, and you need to understand that as we work through these missionary journeys, we're not given all of the details. We're not given every single thing that happened. Luke has a, a short volume. So he's picking on highlights. He's focusing on things to tell this story. So they go through the island of Paphos to Paphos. They find a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, let's get back to the motion of the text. The crew... Barnabas, Saul, John, Mark, they leave Salamis, which is located on the far eastern side of Cyprus. And they make their way 90 miles to the opposite end of the island, to the city of Paphos, western side. Now, Paphos. Understand this town, beautiful, beautiful place, right on the Mediterranean, Palm trees, gorgeous. It was a very popular vacation spot 
for the Roman nobility. Think of Paphos as like this weird hybrid of Panama City Beach during spring break and Las Vegas like every other day. Like the old saying of Paphos is what, stay, what happens in Paphos stays in Paphos. Like they had a whole commercial campaign. Like it was a wild town. And we're told that upon entering this town that there are two characters that we're introduced to. First, we're introduced to Sergius Paulus, who was, according to Luke, the Roman proconsul. As such, he being a direct representative of the Roman Senate, oversaw all of the activities of the island. You could think of him in some regards as a governor. Luke also tells us that Sergius, in addition to being a man of power, position, was an intelligent man. And what did he do? He sought to hear the word of God, which explains why he then sins for Barnabas and Saul. Now, we have no idea what precipitated his inquiry, why he asked for these two, or why he find, found himself being drawn to the word of God, except for the reality that, that it appears this missionary duo was making such waves throughout the island of Cyprus that it, it had even caught the attention of the Romans in charge, the higher-ups. So why we have to read through the lines because we're not given all of the specific details. Whatever's happening on Cyprus through the preaching of God's word is so rad that even the Roman higher-ups take note and want to hear. Which leads us to the second character within our story, and that's a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. As we'll see in the next verse, his name was probably, uh, more accurately, Elimaeus Bar-Jesus. Elimus Bar-Jesus. Literally, Elemas, the son of Jesus, that's what bar Jesus means. Now, that doesn't mean that he's the son of Jesus, like our Jesus. Jesus, Joseph, uh, Joshua, um, it's a common name in the first century. Um, and so this man, he is the, Elemas, the son of this man named Jesus. We don't know who this Jesus was, but we're told that he was also a sorcerer and a false prophet who possesses great influence uh, among those of Paphos, specifically Sergius Paulus. And while Sergius wanted a meeting with Barnabas and Saul, fearing that his influence might be undermined, we're told in verse 8 that Elymas the sorcerer, or so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So Barnabas and Saul, They've been called by Sergius to come and share with him the word of God. And this man, fearing that Sergius might convert and that his influence might be diminished, what does he do? He withstood them. In the Greek, this word withstood, it literally means to set oneself against, to resist, to oppose. Now, we don't know how he attempted to do this but we are told why he attempted to do this. And that is he knew Sergius was potentially a convert, that he was ready. So he withstood them. He tries to keep them from coming. Why? He wants to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So verse nine, then Saul, who also is called Paul. Now, let's pause for a second because that's a significant change within the way the book of Acts works. 
We've tried to do our best to call Saul, Saul, though he's also known as Paul. This is when things change, which I'm so thankful for because it's so difficult to call the apostle Paul, Saul over and over and over again when he's known as Paul. And that just gets weird. At this point forward, we don't have to worry about it because he's now Paul. Now we, we mentioned in our initial profile of Saul back in Acts 9, that because he was ethnically Jewish, but also a Roman citizen by birth, it is very likely that his full legal name was Saulos Paulos. Saul being his Jewish name, his ethnic name, Paul being his Roman given name. Because Saul's mission, his calling, was to take the gospel into Gentile communities. We saw this back in Acts 9 as well. It is likely that here he decides for strategic purposes to switch the emphasis. While he's been ministering to the Jews, he's just gone by Saul. But now that he's going into the world, into Hellenistic communities, he wants to find himself to a degree relatable. So he decides to now be known by his Roman name, that being Paul. You know, it should also be pointed out that Saulos, you know, the first king of Israel, it it literally means desired one. Whereas Paulos meant small or little. And and you know, if if in looking at the life of, of Paul, in Judaism, oh, he was Saul, wasn't he? full of pride in his religiousness, his zealousness, his good standing before God. But he had been humbled, hadn't he? Like there could be also that he just, he doesn't want to be known by something he isn't. That he's just small. That he's just little. You know, C.S. Lewis, he wrote in Mere Christianity that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I think that's a good distinction. Where we're told Saul, who's called Paul, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looks intently at him and he says, oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. That's nice. It's a good way to start a conversation. You enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord. And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. Immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. But the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I love this story. Like confrontation hardly describes what's taking place. Here's Elymas. He's desiring to withstand them. (laughs) But he had no idea that the men he's going to try to stand against weren't going to back down. Paul, he recognizes what this man's motivation is. What does he do? He acts with strength, tenacity, decisiveness. Like, there's no, let's meet in the middle. Hey, let's just sit down. We can work this out. Like, he just goes right for the jugular. Now, now before you shrill back at at Paul's approach, Like, I thought he was going to these towns to minister to the lost, not strike them with blindness, right? Before you kind of like, "Eh, I'm a little uneasy with that evangelistic approach, notice that before he does anything, what are we told? Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, like, understand, Paul is not acting out in the flesh, 
Like, it's not as though he's just lost his cool. You know, he's going to have to go back and apologize for kind of going overboard. No, instead, we're told very clearly that everything he does, everything he says, is under the directive of the Holy Spirit. So if you have a problem with how Saul handled this man, you don't have a problem with how Paul handled this man. You have a problem with how God handled this man. He's prompted by the Holy Spirit, which means that what Paul now says is heaven's evaluation of him. He was, look at it again, heaven's evaluation of Elymas. He's full of deceit and all fraud. He's the son of the devil. He's an enemy of all righteousness. He would not cease perverting the straight way of the Lord. That's God's opinion of him. Now, this is not exactly the description that you want associated with your name and the annals of heaven. You see, the underlying reality based upon this description is that this man, it wasn't as though he was ignorant of the truth. He was a man who knew the truth, but had made a conscious decision to work against the will of the Lord. The result, because of these things, because he's standing in the way, Paul goes all Gandalf on him by saying, the Lord, note, the Lord, it wasn't Paul, it was the Lord, was going to blind him for a time. And a dark mist falls on him. And he walks around seeking someone to lead him by the hand, but no one would come to his help, which means that everyone was afraid of him to a degree. Vine's dictionary makes this observation about the phrase, a dark mist. In the single place of its New Testament use, which is, this is the only place you find the phrase, it attests to the accuracy in the selection of words, and not least of medical words, which the beloved physician, that being Luke, often displays. For him, it expresses the mist of darkness, which fell on the sorcerer, being the outward invisible sign of the inward spiritual darkness, which would be his portion for a while and the punishment for his resistance of the truth. No, he wasn't struck with blindness forever. Like Paul's clear, for a time. You know, I can't escape this, this, this subtle detail at the beginning of this, where Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. You know, have you ever like, been on the, the, the other end of a look? <laughs> if you're a fella, you're like, oh yeah, I've seen that, I've seen a look. I know that look. Like, what was this look? He's filled with it, he looks intently at him. Like, was it the look of anger? Like, did his eyes spark with rage? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Instead, I'm actually convinced that this look, he looked intently at him. It was, it was the look of pity. And, and why was it a look of pity? You see, I'm convinced that Elemas, that in Elemas, Paul, as he looks at this man, he sees what he's doing, he knows why he's doing it, that, that, that Saul pitied him because he saw in him a reflection of his former self. Think, think back. Paul saw. He also withstood the work of Jesus, right? He, he withstood the workers of Jesus. He did the same thing the sorcerer's doing. Now, he did it in a, in a different explanation. And what had been God's prescription for his resistance? 
I think he looks intently at him with pity, knowing, oh, brother, I've done this before, and I know what's about to happen. I know what's going down. You know what's going down? Like, when you're doing this, it's blindness. It's coming. Trust me. It was the truth serum I had to take as well. Because, right, Paul was was standing the, the Lord. He was resisting. God intervened, right? What happened? He was blind for three days, sitting there contemplating. It was the same remedy. You know, if there's any lesson that can be learned from this story, it's this. And I want you to, I want you to follow me here because I think it's essential. It's an important, important reality. It's that the most dangerous place for any person in the world is to stand between a seeker and the God in whom he's seeking. That's what Elemas was doing. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Commenting on this passage, David Guzik, he, he issues this, start, this, this sharp warning. He says, if you want to commit spiritual suicide, that's your prerogative. But how dare you take another soul to hell with you? Now, please understand that some of the most severe passages in Scripture, some of the harshest things that are ever said by Jesus are reserved for those who would intentionally lead a person astray. In Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's the kind words from meek Jesus, right? Like, please understand that if there's someone seeking God and you're prohibiting them, God will deal with you swiftly and decisively. You know, there's only one time that we're told that God runs. Anyone know? Only one time that we're told that God runs. God can't wait. And it's when a prodigal has decided to come home. And nothing will stand in his way. You know, this man... He's dealt with, he's incapacitated. But notice the reaction of Sergius Paulus. We're told that the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, now note, his belief was not based on what had just happened to the sorcerer. But his belief, according to the way that the, the Greek is structured, was found in what? In the word of God. He was astonished, not at the miracle. He was astonished at the teaching of God's word. We're told, right? That how does faith come? Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. Now, in conclusion, I think it, it would be advantageous to explain here that there are three essential components. Three things must exist for any epidemic, whether it be a disease or the spreading of an idea. First, there has to be what's called the stickiness factor. This means that a message must be so memorable that it, it creates naturally a change it spurs someone to action. Like in, in the medical world of epidemics, it describes the, le the level of contagiousness inherent within a disease. We're, not, we're told not to freak out about Ebola. Why? Because it's not super contagious in the sense of how it transfers from human to human. You can reach your own conclusions on that on your own. But the flip side to it, like we see here, 
that what is contagious? The word of God. Like, so note, you got a message that sticks, that's memorable, it creates a change. But there's another thing that has to happen. And it's called the power of context. It, it means that a message, once it begins, it spreads quickly, it, it matriculates within a group of people. The formal definition is that individuals are acutely sensitive to their present environment so that certain situations can be so powerful they can overwhelm inherent predispositions. Like it's what happens in an epidemic when enough people are now infected with a contagious disease that pandemonium breaks out. Chaos, it then takes off like wildfire. You see this with mob mentality, mob think. Couple people start throwing bricks into windows. They're just, someone's waiting for the first thing to happen. And then boom, whole city blocks get destroyed. It just, it goes fast. Great awakenings. Couple people convicted by the Holy Spirit. Things start happening and it spreads. We have a message that's sticky and it's so sticky that once it begins, it will start to spread on its own. You know what's interesting? I, I, love, I love it when I see someone, he's got a crew of, of friends. He's running with a group. They're all unbelievers. And one guy, I mean, gives his life to the Lord. One guy gets serious about his faith. One guy just gets gripped. One of two things happen. And inevitably, either over the course of time, he's no longer friends with the rest of them because they, they don't like goody two-shoes. Or the entire group of friends get saved. Like it happens like one or the other, and this is that power of context. Things can spread fast, and yet none of the other two results are possible without an initiator, a person who starts it all. We call it patient zero. See the gospel. The gospel has a stickiness, and it can quickly move within a group of people, but it needs you to be a tipping point to set the whole thing in motion. You know, we noted in our introduction that what enabled men like Bill Gates and the Apostle Paul to be so effective tipping the tide was this one reality that they were uniquely prepared to take advantage of an opportunity the exact moment the opportunity presented itself. So I want to close this morning with this question. Are you prepared for the opportunity? Like we challenged you last Sunday that you're the tipping point. This is how this works. Things will change when you take the gospel, but are you prepared? Are you ready for the opportunity? In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. Chapter 2, verse 15 of the same book, Paul says, be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, able to rightly divide the word of truth. Are you ready for the moment? Are you ready to step into the opportunity? A couple weeks ago, I went downtown. I had a series of meetings. Going to meet a buddy um, at a place in Highland. Got together, had dinner. My plan was is to afterwards head over to Andy's studies. Got that study in Grant Park on Thursday nights. That was my plan. My friend leaves. I got about an hour to kill. So I'm just sitting there uh, working on my Bible study. Well, it was Thursday night football. I think the Broncos were playing somebody else. So I, initially being the only person there, quickly found the room filling up. Now, I have a prime table. Perfect view of the TV. And so as things are filling up, you know, I ask for the check. 
I go to check out. One of the guys kind of overhears me, this older, uh, this older gentleman, and he says, hey, are you, are you about to leave? And I was like, yeah. He goes, do you mind if I, if I take your table? I said, yeah, go for it. So he sits in the open seat next to me, just two seats. And so as I'm packing up my computer, packing up my stuff, I just felt the Lord, the Lord say, this is not a coincidence. This is like, are you ready for the opportunity when the opportunity presents itself? And so I thought, well, I, okay. So I, I just, I said, hey, are you waiting for someone? Like, are, you got company coming? He goes, oh, no, I'm actually a patron here. Uh, it's no big deal. Um, I just needed a seat. I said, well, do you mind if I actually stay for a few minutes? I think I'm going to watch the first quarter of the game. He said, yeah, no problem. Well, we started talking because I sensed the moving of the Spirit. We closed the place. We talked for literally like the next four hours about the Lord, about Christ. He, he proclaimed to be a humanist. I don't even think he really understood what that meant, but, but we got into that to the point that like, most of the people around us are involved in the conversation. No one cares about the football game, which was fine because Peyton Manning destroyed whoever they were playing. And in the process of this conversation, we got to the meat because what was holding him up is that when he was a youth, a young man, he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant and had convinced her to have an abortion. And he couldn't forgive himself for that. That he had killed what could have been his only son because he never had kids. And I looked at him and he had tears in his eyes. And I said, Jesus forgives you. Jesus died for that. And I, I explained the gospel. Now he didn't, he didn't like, it wasn't a conversion moment. It was a, sow, a seed sowing opportunity. But are you ready are you ready for the moment? Now, that doesn't mean that you've got to have all of your theology T's crossed and I's dotted, but you do have a story, don't you? Are you ready to tell it? You know, the other thing that I can't help but see in this passage, Paul. Paul's going to evangelize the world, right? Take the gospel into the world. But that didn't mean that he wasn't willing to fight for the soul of one man. You sorcerer, strike you with blindness. Get out of my way. There's a man who needs the gospel. Has the Lord ever impressed on your heart someone that needs it? A friend, a neighbor? Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to fight for that person? You know, most of the time, we're, we're too easily deterred, aren't we? Hey, um, would you mind coming to church with me? No. Oh, okay, okay. Well, nice fight. Right in line with the Apostle Paul. I rebuke you in the name. <laughs> Are you willing to fight? Paul was. And, and through him, we're here today. You are the tipping point. And you've been equipped with something the world doesn't have, which makes you unique. It makes you special. Are you looking for opportunities? And are you ready for them? And are you willing to fight for the people you claim to love? Heaven and hell are on the line, friend. 
The stakes are high. Does the way that we handle these things, is it consistent with that reality? So Father, we just leave it there.